Bible tonight, please open up to the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 5, Matthew chapter 5. Matthew chapter 5, and uh, I'd like if you would join me with standing and reading one verse. So we won't be standing very long, but if you could do that, if you're able to stand, stand and read with me verse 41. It's a nice short verse, you'll like it. Matthew 5 and verse 41, let's read it together, then let's pray. And shall compel thee to go a mile, go with him twain. Amen. Heavenly Father, help us now tonight to understand the application of this scripture to our hearts and lives. You've been so good with us, Lord. And uh, truly, as we've, we've commented before, you certainly do have to humble yourself in order to walk with us. And you don't do it uh, grudgingly or in some kind of stingy sort of way, but you're very loving and generous with your time and your help and your grace toward us. Dear Heavenly Father, help us to apply this truth. Holy Spirit of God, be the preacher tonight and show us its application in our lives for Jesus. For it's in his name we pray, amen. Please be seated. <clears throat> Uh, this verse here, whosoever shall compel thee to go a mile, go with him twain, it's a reference to what Bible commentators call a Roman law, a forced requisition of aid or help, forced. Apparently, um, a Roman soldier was allowed to um, grab someone and compel them to... Uh, to go with them a mile and carrying their backpack or some gear or something like that. Um, we've got an example of that in Matthew chapter 27 when they were crucifying Jesus and they'd beaten him so badly that he was not able to carry his own cross. And so in verse 32 of that chapter it says, and as they came out, they found a man of Cyrene, Simon by name. Him they compelled to bear his cross. And we're all familiar with that uh, scripture and that story, I believe. And so none of us lived back then, and I've tried to do some research on this, but it seems to be true, what they call forced requisition of aid, and military personnel and armies have done this, you know, down for the last thousands of years. It's common enough where if they need help, they'll just grab civilians and and get the job done. Military people uh, tend to, to do that kind of thing. So Jesus, in uh, this uh, chapter and in this verse here, is telling us something important. Look at it again. And whosoever shall compel thee to go a mile, go with them twain. So as I understand it, uh, you were legally bound to go with him a mile. 
And Jesus is telling us, don't stop there. If they compel you to go one mile, go two. Interesting that Jesus would say that. He told us not to stop after one mile, but to go the extra mile. And I think that's where that expression comes from, going the extra mile. I think it comes from here. Now, why would Jesus say this? Well, let's look at verse 39. But I say unto you that ye resist not evil, but whosoever shall smite thee on thy right cheek, turn to him the other also. And so we're not to resist evil. We're to turn the other cheek. Verse 40. And if any man will sue thee at the law to take away thy coat, let him have thy cloak also. And so we're to let him have our cloak. You see, we're being compelled here, right? Um, and verse 41. Whosoever shall compel thee to go a mile, go with him twain. Jesus is almost doubling this. As we're mistreated, as we're compelled to do something, let's voluntarily give something else in there. Now, uh, the context of, of these um, sayings of Jesus give us an expression of God's love. That's what Jesus is getting at. You want what God is like. Well, here we go here. And uh, God is not stingy. God is very generous. If somehow God could be compelled to do one thing, what would God do? He would, he would do that and add something else with it. And there's a principle, a connecting principle over in Romans that says, be not overcome with evil, but overcome evil with good. And that's the, that's the beginning of it right there. When someone does you dirt, don't do dirt back to them. Overcome evil with good. If they can somehow compel you to do something, then go along with it and do something else nice. In uh, doing so, we overcome evil. God is, uh, I think, at the heart of all of this. Now, if you look, please, at verse 43, Jesus goes on. He says, Ye have heard that it hath been said, Thou shalt love thy neighbor and hate thine enemy. Uh, but I say unto you, love your enemies, bless them that curse you, do good to them that hate you, and pray for them which despitefully use you and persecute you. And here it is, that ye may be the children of your Father which is in heaven. For he maketh his son to rise on the evil and on the good, and sendeth rain on the just and on the unjust. I remember many years ago as a new believer, not understanding the principles of farming, I thought, well, when God sends the sun, that sounds like good things. When God sends the rain, that sounds like bad things. And so the way I took it was good and bad happens to everyone, to the just and to the unjust. But that's not what Jesus is saying. If you know anything about farming, if you've ever tried to raise crops or plant a garden and grow vegetables, you need both the sun and the rain, both. And what Jesus was simply saying is that if God only sent the sun and the rain on the fields of the righteous, then most of the world would die of starvation. But God is good. God is good to the just and to the unjust. Sometimes we look at someone and we say, well, there's a clever devil. Why that, that fellow there, why doesn't God just smite him? Huh? Why doesn't God press the smite key? Ah, smite him good there. Why doesn't God do that? Boy, if I were God, I would do it. 
probably a good thing that you and I are not God, huh? The world wouldn't be in very good shape. It wouldn't last, I don't think. Only God can be God. And God is a loving God. But I'll tell you something. At the end of the day, God settles the accounts. God is very loving and gracious and giving, even to the unjust, even to the wicked. But one day, the wicked are going to have to give account. They will. They don't get, get off the hook. God is loving and praise the Lord for it. But the unjust and the wicked and the clever devils, they're not going to get away with it. Not to worry. And so he goes on and he says in verse 46, For if ye love them which love you, what reward have ye? Do not even the publicans the same? That word love is the word agape. And it's considered the highest form of love. The kind of love that a parent would have for a child or someone who really cares about you would, would want just the very best for you. That's the kind of love that God has for us. But, you see, Jesus here is using that word and saying, if you agape them which agape you, huh, what good is that? What reward have ye? Do not even the publicans the same. The publicans were the, ooh, the tax collectors back then. And even today, tax collectors don't have a very, you know, good reputation. Not that they're dishonest or anything. It's just that people are afraid of them. You know, when CRA comes knocking on your door, you're shaking inside. Down in the States, it's the IRS. You see, to a, a government, tax money is a sacred cow. And you don't go messing with their sacred cow, do you? Boy, uh, you're out on a limb. And, and they got the saw. <laughs> they can cut you off. And so the tax collectors, even back then, and that back then they were really corrupt. They really, it was a corrupt system back then. And they were hated and despised. I don't even think they liked each other. But those were human beings too. And those despised tax collectors, the publicans, they could agape people who agaped them. So it's almost like what I mentioned this morning, what I heard from um, Pastor Jeff Hastings. Don't let visitors do more than you do. Boy, I, you know, I sat there just, well, of course, that makes all the sense in the world. Why should we, who call Grace Baptist Church our home, why should we just come and sit and pretend we're visitors? And then visitors come and do what visitors do, which is visit, and then we who call the church home, we don't do anything more than that. We don't lift a finger. We don't do anything for the Lord. Folks, this is, this is I think, some of the highest calling over here of the Christian life. You have been called and saved to serve. That's the calling of God on your life. The calling of God on my life. God may not call you to be a pastor, evangelist, or missionary, but you've been called to live your life full-time for the Lord Jesus Christ. What kind of service are you doing? This ought to be a turnaround year for all of us. It really, you know, you say, well, I, boy, I don't think it applies to me because I'm serving the Lord. I, I'm doing something for the Lord. Praise God for it. Praise God for it. But before we go breaking our arm, patting ourselves on the back, I just wonder if there's anything else we can do for the Lord. We need to have that attitude. Lord, is there anything else I can do for you? 
Lord, is there anything else you need? Is there anything else I can do for you? Isn't that the mark of a, a good waitress or a good waiter? After they've served you, they say, now, is there anything else I can do for you? Can I get you anything else? Now, maybe there's nothing, but sometimes there's something. Maybe you'd like a, an extra couple of napkins or uh, some lemon uh, twist or something for your water, your ice water or something. And so you tell them and they say, absolutely. And then they go and they, they do that. They run that errand for you. And I think that uh, if the waitress in the restaurant, if the, <coughs> if the waiter can say that and do that, I think that us Christians ought to be able to do that for our Savior. And so we, um, we get to verse 47. And if ye salute, uh, it's the idea of respectful embracing. It doesn't mean this, you know, click the heel military kind of salute. But it's a, it's a greeting is what it is. Uh, if ye salute your brethren only... What do ye more than others? Do not even the publicans so? And here it is. Read it out loud. Keep your seats, but read out loud verse 48 with me. Be ye therefore perfect, even as your Father, which is in heaven, is perfect. Now someone's going to say, Oh, well, that lets me out. I'm not perfect. No, that lets you in. That lets you in. Because Jesus said, be therefore perfect. If you were already perfect, you wouldn't apply to you. But, you know, if you're not perfect, then it must apply. It lets you in. Be therefore perfect, even as your Father, which is in heaven, is perfect. Well, how can I be like God? That's not what Jesus is saying. As we, as we follow God, I mean, we've got some instruction right here. You know, we're to love the enemies and bless them that curse you and pray for them which despitefully use you, persecute you. We're to be like God in that fashion. And so the context, and don't miss it here, the context, it's all an expression of God's love. If you look at verse 41 again, and whosoever shall compel thee to go a mile, go with him twain. Go with him too. And so the application is very simple. If we would go the extra mile for an unsaved Roman guard, why wouldn't we go the extra mile for Jesus? How about that? Is that a good application? Hmm? If we're told and we're willing to do it for some kind of unsaved military man who compels us and go the extra mile, why can't we do the same for our Savior who loved us and gave every drop of blood for us to keep us out of hell. I think it's a good thought. Are we so stingy with our lives that we couldn't go the extra mile for Jesus? Are we really that desperate, that stingy? If we would learn to do one little job for Jesus, couldn't we learn to do two? Is that not possible? Now, God himself is not stingy at all when it comes to us and his gifts for us. But God always goes the extra mile. Now you might wonder how we know that. I'll show you if you'd go to the book of Romans chapter 8. Turn over there now. Romans chapter 8. God would not ask us to do something that he himself was not willing to do. Romans chapter 8. <clears throat> I'd like you to read out loud with me. 
verse number 32. Romans 8, verse 32. Read it out loud with me, please. He that spared not his own son, but delivered him up for us all, how shall he not with him also freely give us all things? There's your second mile. He gave us his son, and he also gives us all things freely. There's the second mile. And God asks us to follow him and be like him. The Lord Jesus gave his life for the church, and he loves the church very much. Know this, the local church is God's program for this age in which we live. There's a lot of different organizations out there, you know, and there's a lot of Christian people involved with different organizations, but it's the local church. If you read the Bible and believe the Bible, it's the local church. That's God's plan. It's his program. You know, there's different groups that work with young people and different groups that work with underdeveloped countries and different groups that try to provide, you know, even some missionary work, uh, even gospel work. Uh, there's some groups that try to uh, beam um, uh, radio programs, and, and these are all fine, but they're not God's program. God's revealed program. God doesn't have two and three plans. He's got one plan. Back before the, he started the church, he had Israel. That was his plan. He didn't have a whole bunch of other nations and groups and people trying to set themselves up. He had Israel. And when Israel turned their back on their Messiah, Jesus died on the cross, rose again, and began his church. And it began there in Acts and chapter 1 and 2, and away it went. The local church is God's program. And so we need to get with the program. And Jesus gave his life for the church. But the church has many needs. And so Jesus looks to you and to me to give of ourselves and to serve him. This morning, we tried hard to bring out this principle that it's only as we give to the Lord that we enter into a closeness with him. Because according to Proverbs, the principle is your gift will bring you into the presence of greatness. And you can't get any greater than God. Um, I think that is very, very important, very key. Now, I'd like you to turn back to Matthew. Only go to Matthew 25, if you would. I'd like you to see a, a little parable here. And I think it easily applies to our church, to Grace Baptist Church. Matthew 25. It really begins in verse 31. And uh, this here actually sort of summarizes the previous two parables in this chapter. But we don't have time to look at that. And Jesus is talking about the end of times, when the Son of Man shall come in his glory and all his holy angels with him, then shall he sit upon the throne of his glory, and before him shall be gathered all nations. Canada is going to be there. And he shall separate them one from another, as a sh shepherd divideth his sheep from the goats. And he shall set the sheep on his right hand, but the goats on the left. Then shall the king 
say unto them that are on his right hand, Come, ye blessed of my Father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was an hungered, and ye gave me meat. I was thirsty, and ye gave me drink. I was a stranger, and ye took me in. Naked, and ye clothed me. I was sick, and ye visited me. I was in prison, and ye came unto me. Then shall the righteous answer him, saying, Lord, when saw we thee and hungered and fed thee, or thirsty and gave thee drink? When saw we thee a stranger and took thee in, or naked and clothed thee? Or when saw we thee sick or in prison and came unto thee? And the king shall answer and say unto them, and here it comes, Verily I say unto you, Inasmuch as ye have done it unto one of the least of these, my brethren, ye have done it unto me. And <laughs> there is a close connection between Jesus and his church, Jesus and his people. Those who are blood-bought, born again, names written in the Lamb Book of Life, the Lord Jesus loves them, they love him. There's a definite close connection. We're talking here about getting involved and serving the Lord, serving God's people. When you serve God's people, you are serving Jesus Christ. One way, one strong way that I serve the Lord Jesus Christ is I serve you. I look upon you as uh, God's blessing in my life, and I want to take care of you, and I want to pray for you, and I want to serve you, and I want to make sure you're looked after. And by serving God's people, I'm serving my Savior. I'm serving the Lord Jesus Christ. That's why it's important for all of us to do the same thing. That's why we have ministry jobs and little jobs and bigger jobs and things in the church. And everyone who's saved needs to get involved. We cannot just come and, like a sponge, keep soaking it up. We have to be giving it out as well. And there's a reciprocation there. You, you take it in, you give it out. Now listen, our time on earth is short. And uh, the older we get, the more we realize that, right? How quickly the time goes by. Uh, boy, it doesn't take long, and a whole year's gone. And we say, oh, there goes another one. Now you might think, well, I got 50 left. Maybe you do, maybe you don't, right? But even if you did, before, you, before long, you know, if you figure you're going to live to be, say, 80 years of age, the average Canadian lives around that, 82, 83, say 80. When you hit 40, half your life's gone. You're a middle-ager, half your life's gone. When you hit 60, you're in your last quarter, right? That's if you make it to 80. Some of us won't make it to 80. You say, well, some of us might make it to 90. Maybe, maybe that'll just give us more chance to serve the Lord. You see, that's what your life is for. You have been saved to serve. That's what you have been saved for, is to get involved and to serve. And so you need to take a stock and take account of your life. What am I doing? How am I spending my days, my weeks, my months? Am I involved? Am I doing anything? You know, there's jobs even in a little church like ours. There's jobs for everyone. 
You say, oh, what, what are they? Well, there's a lot of them. We can tell you about them after. But we even have new ministries that we want to get started. We've got things we want to get see done, but it's hard because not enough, not enough of God's people are doing enough work. You've heard this statistic that in the average church, 80% of the church, of the work in the church, is done by 20% of the people. Now, you try and transfer that over to a business, and if you've got 100 people in a business and only 20 of them are doing the work, what are the other 80 doing? Makes you wonder, doesn't it? So uh, I'm not saying that the church is like a, a business like that, but I am saying this. We ought to serve our Lord. And again, whosoever shall compel thee to go a mile, go with them twain. We need to learn to go the extra mile for Jesus. That's what I'm saying here tonight. You've got one little job, great. Do you think you could do two little jobs? You pray for one missionary, wonderful. Do you think you could pray for two? And I'm saying, let's see what we can do. Now, there's another reason why I think you ought to consider going the extra mile. There's another reason. There's several, but I want to give you another really good reason why you ought to go that extra mile for Jesus. And it's in one word. Memories. Memories. Some Christians are going to go pretty much all their lives, their Christian lives, through and they're going to do very little for Jesus, and so they'll have very few memories of the fun and the great times together and the excitement and the times when things were kind of crazy. Those are all good memories. I got a little story here written by a, a lady. She's um, a wife, a mother, a grandmother, in fact. Her name is Pamela Blaine. And I'd like to read you this little story. It touched my heart when I read it. She entitled the story, Left Behind. This is what she wrote. They're gone now. I stood in the driveway and watched my growing children drive off into the distance. I looked down the road until I could no longer see their vehicles. They live way too far away from me, I said to myself. When did they grow up and become parents of small children? Hey, shouldn't that be me? I slipped back inside the house and just walked through the rooms for no reason in particular. I was just missing them already and looking for signs of their having been here. There were pillows on the floor where they had been tossed from the couch so they could be used for a bed, and a few stuffed animals lying around where the children had been playing. I smiled at the little fingerprints on my mirror. I didn't wipe them off. I thought back to the time when I tried to so hard to keep the fingerprints off the mirrors and doors when my children were small. Now, I wanted the tiny fingerprints to stay so that I could see them there just a little longer. Oh, I knew I would eventually clean the glass doors and the mirror, but for now, they remained a work of art, a collage of tiny fingerprints for my viewing. As I walked around the house, I picked up a few items on the floor and straightened a chair. I decided to sort through the toy box, and I found a flying dinosaur, a skeleton, and a Frankenstein that had mysteriously taken up residence in my toy box. It always amazes me how Ben, the five-year-old connoisseur of toys, remembers the items in the toy box and knows whom they belong to and if anything is missing. I walked into the kitchen, and there on the back of the sink was a bottle brush 
that had been left behind. Ah, even Tessa left something behind, I announced. Well, I suppose she had help since she's only four months old. I wondered what else had been left behind. I said out loud to no one in particular. My husband heard me and joined the search for things left behind. It seems like every time our family gets together, something is left behind. When I call my children to tell what they have left behind, I'm usually told, oh, just bring it when you come, or keep it for me until I come back the next time, or, hey, I really don't need that, would you mind mailing, I really do need that, would you mind mailing it to me? Oh, look, here's Tegan's tooth, I said to my husband as I picked up a Ziploc bag with her name engraved on it. Tegan had a loose tooth and had managed to wiggle it out earlier in the day. Now she can't put it under her pillow. I wonder if it would work if I put it under my pillow. The tooth fairy is going to be so confused, I laughed. Here's a pair of tennis shoes, Mike said, and three socks, he added. Maybe the mystery of extra socks in the dryer has finally been solved. Perhaps some people are wearing three socks at a time. Hey, Ben left his rubber spider, I said to my husband. Oh, it'll be here when he comes back, he replied. Not if I can help it, I said. As I recalled my last encounter with the creepy little thing, I remembered how Ben had giggled like crazy the first time I had seen one of those monster spiders that he placed in a strategic place for me to find. He loves to see me jump, and he's never disappointed since making Grandma jump doesn't take much, <laughs> with or without spiders. You just never know when you might need a huge black spider that looks and feels real, I said as I hastily threw it in a box with the shoes to mail back to my daughter. I hope she doesn't have a heart attack when she opens the box, but then I imagine she's pretty used to rubber spiders by now. I walked around the house finding more things that had been left behind. A toothbrush, a ponytail band, an angel figurine, a pie pan, a frozen teething ring in the freezer, and last but not least, the insides of a turkey fryer. I was really kind of enjoying myself. It gave me something to do after they all left to take my mind off missing them. Then my eyes teared up as I noticed the baby outfit beside the sink where it had been left to dry after the spots had been scrubbed out of it. The little outfit, now stain-free, reminded me of a trip to the emergency room with Rowan due to a gash on her head that was caused from a flower pot pulled down over the, by curious little fingers. Hmm, things left behind, I pondered to myself. It seems there's one thing that's left behind on every occasion. Memories are always left behind, I reasoned, and what a precious thing good memories are to us. I thought how each item left behind reminded me of the person it belonged to and the story surrounding it. The insides of the turkey fryer that was left behind reminded me of the delicious Thanksgiving meal that we all enjoyed. The empty pie pan reminded me of Katie's delicious pies. The angel figurine reminded me of the white elephant gift exchange game that we play every year. Even the bad memory of Rowan's injury reminded me how frightened I was at the sound of her cry. It's a bad memory that turned into a good one as it reminded us how precious little Rowan is to us. Memories happen even if we aren't aware of it. The stressful and difficult moments often become memories, and we look back on later with laughter and joy. They're the stories of the future when one day someone will say, hey, remember when? And everyone laughs. Yes, I stood in the driveway and watched my grown children drive off into the distance 
and I remembered my own parents once doing the same thing. I never knew then that I would one day be the one waving from the driveway and feeling my heart drive off down the road. That's because there is more, there is one more thing besides memories left behind, and that is love. And what I guess I, I have in mind why I read that story to you is I want to encourage you, go the extra mile for Jesus this year. Get involved. Figure out where you're missing out and get involved because uh, there's going to come a day when the memories will be so precious. Memories. Wonderful memories of having served the Lord. Don't be left behind when it comes to going the extra mile. Let's bow our heads for prayer.